every now and then I think it's good to stop an exposition that you're going through and take a break and preach from a different book or section of scripture. This morning, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, and I preached this same passage, not necessarily the same sermon, some time ago. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. I'll start in verse 10. Then I heard, this is John, Apostle John. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven singing, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Lord, we continue to give you the glory. We continue to exalt in you. You are the eternal God, the God of ages, the God that created time and space and matter. And as we come into your word, we pray that you would use this word to convict, to challenge, and to comfort us this morning, Lord, that you may be exalted in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. We give you praise. Amen. Do you like to lose? Do you like to be defeated? Some of you may remember the old uh, wild, wild sports. Who remembers the wild, wild sports? And what they would say during that is the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. (laughs) It can be agonizing to be defeated. Sometimes it doesn't really that, it doesn't matter that much if you lose. When it comes to Uno, I'm a consistent loser. I lose all the time in Uno. Playing badminton with my kids, we play to maybe like 10 or 15 points and usually I lose like 10 to 2. They defeat me in badminton and Uno, but it doesn't matter that much. I grew up playing Football and baseball, not with the school, uh, basketball, just in leagues around the area, like Little League and things like that. Won some and I lost some, but being defeated in a Little League game, it it might disappoint me, but it's not that significant. The, The consequence of losing a Little League baseball game isn't that huge. Now, if you were in a war or a battle and you lost a battle or lost a war, that could be very significant. It would matter if you were defeated. But in our text, it's, are we going to defeat the devil or is the devil going to defeat us? And the consequences are eternal. You can see that in verse 11, and they overcame him. Chapter 13, verse 7, says it was given to him, that is Satan, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And so we'll talk about that contrast and that difference there. But it is extremely important, of course, eternally significant that we defeat the devil. And this verse is saying they, that is believers, saints, they can overcome Satan. They can overcome the devil. In Christ, we can beat him. And when you look in this context of Revelation, Revelation 6 all, all the way to Revelation 19 is the most turbulent, difficult, trying time in the history of mankind. So even during, even during the most satanically inspired time where the Antichrist is ruling on the earth, even during that very time, these believers, it says in verse 11, they overcame him. This has been given to you and I in order that we, that is the book of Revelation, 
has been given to you and I that we learn and take heed and emulate and practice these things that are written in the book of Revelation, and not just to ponder about the end times or to satisfy our eschatological curiosity, but really to seek to become more like Christ. We see Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed or do the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, this was written... 2,000 years ago or so. And even then, John said the time is near. So for certain, we can say right now, of course, and we've said this in the past, we are closer to Christ coming back today than we've ever been before. Right? That's <laughs> that's just logical. Right? But extremely, in one sense, so, because 2,000 years ago, John said it's near. If we look at our world today, it seems that Christ's coming could be soon, with all that's happened and is happening. And yet, even these believers here in the book of Revelation, they overcame the devil. And so this morning, I want us to learn that even during the most satanically stressful, difficult times, you can defeat the devil. You can defeat the devil. And there's three tactics that we see in this passage, and you can see them right here. They overcame him how? Because of the blood of the Lamb, look at the verse, the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and because they didn't love their life even when faced with death. Now, why do we say they overcame the devil? Why do we say uh, we can defeat the devil? Because this word, when you see verse 11, and they overcame him, overcame is the Greek word nikao. We get our sneakers, Nike, from this Greek word. Nike or Nike means victory. And that's what verse 11 is here is saying. They had victory over the devil. They defeated the devil. Now, the question then is, if you look at 13, chapter 13, verse 7, it uses the same word, and it says Satan, or the Antichrist, made war with the saints to overcome them. So verse 7 is not necessarily saying that he absolutely conquered the saints, but he made war with believers in order to defeat them. That was his purpose. And for some of them, or for many of them, he overcame them only in the sense that they passed away, that they died, that they physically lost their, their bodies, that they went to heaven. But he didn't overcome their faith. Verse 7 of chapter 13 is mainly talking about Satan's purpose. Whereas in chapter 12, verse 11, it's saying that actually believers overcame the devil. They had victory over him. Even victory over the Antichrist. And if you keep looking at verse 11 where it says they, and it's they, they overcame him. It's very emphatic saying that these believers, they, they overcame. It would have been very, it would be very encouraging to these believers, if you read Revelation chapters uh, 2 through 3, these believers that were being persecuted already. These churches in Asia Minor, they were being really persecuted by Nero and close to losing their lives. They had to confess that Nero was Lord, otherwise they could be martyred. And so this would encourage them that Satan, the devil, can be overcome. We can have victory over him. And again, it's emphatic. They! Now, I would say this, when we look at verse 11... And in context of the whole book of Revelation, it's not necessarily saying that somebody who may at one point in their life that might deny Christ, that, that that's it, their, their fate is settled, and so then they, they go to hell. That's not what this verse is saying. I say that because I, I've seen so many end-time movies in my life where it's almost as if 
a person were to deny Christ, then they've bowed the knee to Satan, and then for sure they're going to go to hell. However, when we look at Scripture, we see that there's a difference between denying Christ three times and then not denying Christ with your whole life. Peter, the apostle, Peter denied Christ how many times? Three times. Did the apostle Peter go to hell? No. But he was restored by Christ, and the rest of his life proved that he was overcoming the enemy, the devil, the Satan. So what I'm seeing that this verse is saying, this verse isn't saying that if you have a bad day and there was an opportunity to to witness and you didn't witness and you you blew that opportunity, well, then you've denied Christ and now you're going to hell. So your life is over. That's not what this verse is saying, but rather by not, not just one moment or two moments or three moments, but by our consistent, habitual, progressive lifestyle, we are overcoming the devil. Uh, we're sinners. And so we sin. And we will sin until we see Jesus with our own eyes. So we're not saying that we can be sinless, but we are saying that by God's grace, we make progress in defeating the devil. However small that progress may be. And we do that according to this passage in three ways. The first way is satisfy. The second way is testify. And a third way would be mortify. Satisfy, testify, mortify. First, the first tactic is satisfy. That is, defeat the devil by Christ's satisfaction. And if you look at verse 11, you can see this very clearly. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. So you and I, we fight Satan, not standing in the sacrifice I make for God, but I fight Satan standing in the sacrifice that God made for me in Christ. I don't fight Satan with my own strength, my own power, with my own merit, with my own spiritual, materious gusto, but rather I fight Satan because of that sacrifice that Christ made for me. Now, that's based upon verse 11, where it says, because of the blood of the Lamb. Now, if you had not grown up in the church, maybe you were an atheist, and you heard this, you might be a little spooked. You overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb. You may if you had never been exposed to the Bible, absolutely have no idea what that meant. And you might think that that was extremely weird. By the blood of the Lamb. So I overcome Satan by an animal being slaughtered? That's the reference. The blood of the Lamb. If you were Jewish, you would understand what this meant. There were many Far East religions, Middle East religions, African religions, I think even European religions of that day and age, they would understand the blood sacrifice of any animal. But but we don't understand it that much today. The the word picture in the mind for these believers would have been just an animal that was slaughtered, that basically had its throat cut. And that is a picture in the background for the Messiah, for Christ Jesus, who would give his life for those that were his. That he would die for them. The word here, where it says the the blood of the lamb, is not just that the lamb had to bleed, but that the lamb had to die. And I think at times... Christianity, at least how I was brought up and how I was raised, can be, or we can make this confusing. Because in our prayers sometimes, I have heard, and I've even prayed for myself, and I've shared with you how I used to pray for my own 
and even my band members did when I was in a band, how I couldn't play the bass guitar in rhythm. I could play the notes, but I couldn't always keep on, on the right beat. I would go too fast. So one of our band members used to play, used to pray, Lord, I pray the blood of Jesus on Tom's guitar. What does that mean? Because if we're not careful, we can almost become paganists and how we talk about the blood. Almost like the blood of Jesus is something that is supernatural or mystical in the sense of its hemoglobin and the sense of its very nature. So that is if Jesus bled and it poured right now on my pulpit, I could preach like Charles Spurgeon. And if we're not careful, even how we pray sometimes for for people, we can say, I just pray you would protect this family by the blood of Jesus. So if we pray that way, really what we're saying is, and maybe we don't mean to say this, but we're saying, I pray that the sacrifice of Christ, his substitutional death, would protect these people. Because the word blood in this context doesn't simply mean that Jesus bled from his hands and from his thorns, but it's the idea of what? That he died a substitutionary atonement death on the cross in the place of sinners that deserve that very wrath of God. That's the idea of the blood of the Lamb. And so it says here that they overcame him, they overcame Satan, because of the the Messiah that was slaughtered, that was murdered, that voluntarily gave up his life to be a, a victim in your place, to satisfy that very just wrath of God. And so this verse is basically saying that based upon the cross work of Christ, I defeat the devil. The same writer, the Apostle John, also wrote this in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and following. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. This is how, fundamentally, we fight the devil. We fight Satan. Is I fight Satan with the fact that my forgiveness for my sin is not rooted in my performance. It's rooted in the performance and that penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for my sin. That's how we fight the devil. Now, nitty gritty, what would that look like? I don't do what I want to do. I want to follow Jesus. I want to seek to obey God in in every area of my life and to follow Christ and to be like Christ. And every day I fail. And sometimes I am such a sinner that I, I can get despairing over how much I sin. Is that true for you? I think all of us can be like the Apostle Paul that says in Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am, who has set me free? All of us can, and we should be living in light of that. And even Paul himself said that he was the chief of all sinners. And at times, I think Satan's temptation is to say, you are a helpless, despicable, dirty, cockroach, worm, no good, 
so-called Christian. God doesn't love you anymore. You're such a terrible person. You have no right to think you're going to heaven. You might as well give up. Have you ever been tempted to think that way? I think if you've been a a believer for a length of time, you've thought that way once or twice at least. Perhaps Peter felt that way after he denied Christ. I, I doubt Maybe you have, and if you have, you can be forgiven. But I, I doubt you've ever said, I'm not a Christian, and even cursed when you said that, because apparently in the Gospels, Peter even cursed when he talked about not knowing Christ. He must, he must have felt like a worm. He must have felt despicable. Here in verse 11, it says, they overcame Satan by the the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for sinners. And in that, he gave them forgiveness. That is, that one of the ways that Satan will attack you is to get us, to get you to despair because you sin, and the next day you sin, and you confess your sin, and then you do that sin again. And so either you must not be a Christian, or you must be the worst Christian on earth. So give up. Don't read your Bible. Don't pray. Well, how do we fight that? How do we fight this temptation? Well, we can see how Paul fought it. And I mentioned it in Romans 7 and 1 Timothy 1. We say, true. (laughs) It's true. It's true. I am the worst sinner I know, and I am guilty. But praise God, I have a Savior. I have a Redeemer. In Him, there is redemption through His blood, through His substitutionary death on a cross for my sin. There is forgiveness of my sins according to the riches of His grace. You're right, Satan. As dirty and despicable and sinful as I am, God's grace is even much, much more beyond that. And so you take this temptation where Satan tried to squash you and and to make you feel only dirty and and down and and disgusting and you're not worthy and you say you're right I am dirty I am disgusting I'm not worthy but he is worthy and by his grace and his mercy he provided redemption and cleansing from my sin first Peter 318 says that Christ died once and for all for sinners Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our transgression and rose again to make us right with God. And so we exult in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is, we exult in the work that Christ did. So that the way I relate to God is I relate to God only through Christ. I have peace with God and I stand in exaltation and his glory based upon what Jesus did on the cross, not what I have done or I am doing. Satan will always, in the world, tempt you and I to try to relate to God based upon our performance. What I have done, what I am doing, or what I will do. And then that will make us despairing and depressed. But my peace and my joy, even my happiness, doesn't come foundationally from what I have done, am doing, I will do, but what Christ did. And even Hebrews 7 that we saw, even what he's doing now, living to intercede for me, which is all based upon the blood of the Lamb. But we can even press even more practically into this. Ephesians 4.32 says, to forgive one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Because... Jesus Christ fully satisfied the wrath of God for every sinner that would take refuge in Christ. Therefore, I can forgive and I should forgive and have their responsibility to forgive any Christian that sins against me. So if you can't forgive another brother or sister in Christ, then it's not because that person's sin was so bad in and of itself. That could be part of it. But it's because your view of the cross is what? Small. And not supreme enough. Not large enough. Even if there's a 
an unbeliever that sins against me. I should not seek to get vengeance on them. Why? Well, the end of Romans 12 says, because who's the avenger? Not Iron Man, not Captain America, not Hawkeye, not the Wasp, not the Hulk. Who is the true avenger? God. God is the avenger. And every single sin will be paid for, either in hell or on the cross. So if even if an unbeliever sins, I can trust that God will either get justice by sending that person to hell, or he'll pay that person's sin fully by his death on the cross, by Christ's death on the cross. In other words, when I fully grasp and understand and take refuge that the death of Christ was sufficient to, sufficient to pay the sins of the whole world and efficient for everybody that trusts him, then that inspires me and encourages me and frees me up to, to forgive anybody. And so this is the principle called satisfy. You might remember, and dominoes, do you play dominoes? Lisa's family and I, we all used to play dominoes a lot. Lisa's mother is really good at dominoes, by the way. And when you play a certain domino, if it can't be matched, then somebody has to do what? Satisfy, is what we used to say. Satisfy. You, you, you have to match it. You have to lay something down that that is able to satisfy that other domino. That other domino, if you lay down a five, then it calls for a five to be laid down. In a similar way, because of our sin, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who by no means will let the guilty go unpunished. And so something has to be laid down. Someone that's equal to God the Father's holiness, something has to be laid down equal to that. And that was God the Son. And his perfect, victorious life. And so that's how I relate to God. It's not based upon me satisfying God's just demands, but upon God the Son. So anytime Satan or even my remaining sin says, you don't measure up. Hallelujah! But Jesus does. And so I give him praise and glory because of his death on the cross. That's the first tactic, the first principle. Satisfy. Second, is testify. And you can see this in the verse. Look at verse 11. And because of the word of their testimony. Note it says the word of their testimony. Not just the testimony, but the word of their testimony. Their witness and testimony about Jesus Christ. We defeat the devil by our own witness. And this is a verbal witness. That's the idea of testimony. A verbal witness. Even a type of a verbal confession. And we see this is rooted throughout scripture, right? That is verbally speaking out loud about our faith in Christ. And again, uh, Peter did fail at this. Initially, but the rest of his life, he succeeded. And Peter was eventually martyred. History says that he was crucified up, upside down on the cross. But this principle of verbal testifying about our faith in Christ, we see in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father, who is in heaven. A public witness of and for Jesus Christ. We see this even in Romans chapter 10. That is this verbal testifying of who Christ is in confession. Romans chapter 10, you know, with your actual mouth. Verse 9 of Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord 
and we put the as in our English Bibles, which is fine, but in Greek it would be, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord. That is, he is Lord and not Nero. The, the state isn't the king. Jesus is the king, the supreme authority. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Even verse 10. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, that the result of that is there is a confession resulting in salvation. There is this verbal testimony. And related to this, I think also we can say is, we've seen this in the book of Hebrews. For example, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. There's this verbal witness and testimony that Jesus Christ is my prophet, priest, and king. He is 100% God. He became 100% man. He died on the cross. He rose again. He ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. It is finished. He succeeded in his mission and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is the confession that we see in Scripture. And it's how they overcame Satan. Now note, this confession is a sincere, personal declaration. It comes from your heart. And it's not that your mom or your dad or your church make for you. It's yours. It's sincere. You're being true. Because there are people that say, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, anybody can say, in one sense, Jesus is Lord. And yet not mean it. So this is a true, sincere, personal declaration that Jesus is Lord. Even Colossians 2, 6 says, as you have received Jesus as Lord. In fact, if you were to look at Almost all of Paul's epistles, when he starts, he'll say, Jesus, our Lord. Jesus, our Lord. So there is this confession, there is this verbal declaration that to be saved, we say, Jesus Christ is my supreme authority. He is my supreme king. I I repent and I will follow him and give up my life to him. Together with that is also this witness, this declaration that he is the object of faith then. And we saw that in Romans 10, right? That my faith is not in the church, it's not in me, it's not even in a creed, it's not in the state, it's in the person Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's only that sacrifice that satisfaction of Christ alone that can save me and I place my faith in what Christ did alone. Christ did that. He is the object of my faith. And it's by this that we defeat the devil. When we say and we truly mean it in our heart Jesus is Lord and even Jesus is my Lord Do you think that makes the devil happy? When we say Jesus is Lord and he's my Lord, that doesn't make the devil happy. And these believers, both in Asia Minor when when this was written, but even the future, when verse 11 of chapter 12 was talking about, they were having victory over Satan by saying, it's not the Antichrist that is Lord, God has given him some power and authority for this time. But the ultimate Lord and the ultimate King is Jesus Christ. And that is a way that we defeat the devil. Further, this confession implies an evangelistic witness. That is that we... It's not just a verbal, personal testimony that that I say Jesus is my Lord, but we say that... Two others. We we talk to Christ about the faith, 
and about how Jesus has changed our lives. That's why even in verse 11, it says, because of the word of their testimony. They have a testimony. It doesn't mean necessarily that they lived outward, explicitly wretched, despicable lives before they came to Christ. They were saved, and now their lives are completely transformed. That could be true, but by their testimony, it means that they were dead, but now they're alive. They were not forgiven, now they're forgiven. They were going to hell, now they're going to heaven. They didn't know God's grace, now they know God's grace. And so this testimony that Jesus is their Lord, that he paid the price of their sin, that he rose again, they share that, which they know by word, but also by personal experience. And so they share that with others. This is what verse 11 is saying. And so Satan is overcome. How does he overcome? Well, Romans 1, 16 says what? The gospel of God is the power of God unto salvation. So when you share the gospel about Jesus Christ and the work he did in his cross and in his resurrection, when you share that, God's going to use it in a powerful way. Listen to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I think that this is, is amazing to think about it. And for us to understand even our role in this. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 23, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. So people are born again by when they hear the word of God, and the word of God energized by the spirit of God does a powerful work in them, so much so that they are regenerated. And it was because the word was declared to them. Verse 25, and this is the word which was preached to you. That is, verse, verses 23 to 25 of 1 Peter 1 is saying that when you and I declare the gospel and God's word to somebody, that is the means that God uses to cause them to be born again. And Colossians chapter 1 says that you were delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so when you share the word of God, it doesn't have to be that, that you're loud and, and, and dramatic. You might say, for by grace are you saved through faith. This not of yourself, not of works, lest any man should boast. You could share John fourteen six, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man may come to the Father except through him. Maybe you stumble with the verse. Many times I'll stumble with a verse. And God still takes that. And when that truth is spoken, God will convict, enlighten, regenerate somebody and transfer, transfer them from that kingdom and bondage to Satan and to the kingdom and in the freedom under the Son of God into a world of light and love and glory and grace. And so Satan is defeated. And he's overcome. Witnessing and testifying of God's grace in Christ is not just a a duty. It's a tremendous way to kick the devil in the face. You want to kick the devil in the face? Tell somebody about Jesus. And that will defeat the enemy. Witnessing to the world, the word of Christ wins against the wicked one. Your confession of Christ conquers the devil. When you confess Christ publicly to somebody else, you will conquer the devil. And it's great to like do 4th of July and other outreach times and things like that. But throughout the normal week, day to day, there are often many opportunities to share Christ. By God's grace, pray, seize the opportunity, and say something about Christ. And if you can, say something from the Bible about Christ. And God will use that to convict, to enlighten, and by His grace to regenerate somebody. Hold on to the testimony about Christ, and then hand out that testimony about Christ. There's a third tactic, mortify. 
on how we defeat the devil. A third tactic. Defeat the devil by dying to self-love. Mortify. That's what the word mortify, right? The old Latin word, mortification, <laughs> deals with death. To, to mortify is the idea of putting something to death. Here we put to death our self-love. You can see this at the end of verse 11. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. I'm sure you're familiar today with how some people, even in the church, will say, love God and then love yourself. You have to love yourself. Well, verse 11 says, they did not love their life even when faced with death. There is a certain way that we must have a biblical self-hatred of our own life. Not this being mean to ourselves and inflicting pain on ourselves, but rather, I am not the number one priority. It's not about me getting the glory and honor and having all my dreams answered. It's about the glory of Christ and then loving others. And we see this again throughout Scripture. This is the New Testament principle. Even going back to the book of Matthew, and you're familiar with this, even the call to conversion, the the call to follow Christ. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. This call to discipleship involves the cross. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, to follow me, he must love himself, protect himself. It doesn't say that. He must deny himself and take up his cross, which again can be confusing if we're not careful because we miss the the scandalous nature of that, right? Because for the Jews, for somebody to die on a cross... That that was only for a person that was accursed of God. And so here, this person that's saying that he's the Messiah is saying, unless you're willing to deny yourself and pick up something that would cause you to be accursed of God, you can't follow me. Christ is basically saying here, if you want to follow me, self-love can't be number one. That's part of repentance. It's not about your glory, your honor, your will, your dreams, your ambition. First is Jesus Christ. It says, follow him. Follow me. But even the Apostle Paul said something very similar to this. At Acts chapter 20, he was speaking to the church at Ephesus, and he was leaving, and the elders were there, and he's giving them a farewell, and he's giving them a farewell speech. Acts chapter 20. And in verse 24, he says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. We talked about testifying. For the Apostle Paul to testify successfully about the grace of God, he couldn't hold on to his own life like it was gold or rubies or diamond or precious or valuable in and of itself. He couldn't view his life in that light. The most important thing to the Apostle Paul wasn't that he lived. (laughs) The most important thing, even for Jesus, wasn't that he lived. Otherwise, we couldn't be redeemed. Even for the Apostle Paul, here, in verse 24, it wasn't the most important thing in his life. It wasn't his own life. It wasn't how he, how he was treated by other people. It wasn't that he got all the glory. It wasn't that he, was, he had the best health ever. His own life, he didn't hold it as supremely dear to himself. We can even be reminded of Philippians again. We talked about, I think, briefly last week, briefly last week, where Paul says in Philippians 3, he considers all things, even his own life, as rubbish compared to the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus. There is, in a sense then, where there is this death principle. Death. 
to self-principle. Even Colossians 3.5 says, Slay, strike the earthly members of your body. There is in the Christian life this principle where we are committed to a type of, an attitude to death to our sinful habits and death to anything that gets in the way from us pursuing Jesus and being like Christ. I know many of you have seen Lord of the Rings, the Return of the King movie. Maybe you've read the book. There is in the book, and it's a little bit in the movie, where Rohan is up on the ledge and they're looking down at Gondor and Gondor is surrounded and being besieged by thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of orcs. And here you have the Rohirrim, the riders of, of Rohan, and they're up on the ledge. And Zephyrden is uh, like seized with this, this true uh, battle kind of death, personal death lust and urge to where all of a sudden he and his riders, they start shouting. And in the book it says even singing, death, death, death. And they're riding down on the horses, death, death. And it's not death to the orcs. Not primarily. It's that they are embracing death. And they are saying, I might die. I gladly give my life to save Gondor and to eradicate these orcs. I gladly embrace death. Come to me, death. Be it what it may. I'm going to save Gondor. Death. And I think that's the type of principle that we see in Revelation 12, verse 11, where these believers, they were, I'm going to testify of Christ. I'm going to live for Jesus. And so much so that I could die. I embrace that. It's not that I want to die. It's not that I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be killed. But I'm not going to not testify. I'm not not going to live for Jesus because it may cost me my life. I'm willing to give up my life for Jesus. Not just for persecution, but even to be like Jesus, I'll give up my life to be like him. They did not love their life even when faced with death. We give it up. Now, this pulls the the very fangs from Jesus. I'm sorry. This pulls the very fangs from, from Satan. This Almost, yes, the fear of death, but even this, this principle of I have to preserve my life, my fame, my, my pleasure, my priorities, my ambitions, my reputation. I have to preserve it at, at all costs. Because if I don't, then what's going to happen to me? For, for example... And I think we'll see the connection. I think it's clear. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. It's not about me. It's not about me preserving my life, my fame, my glory, my ambition at all costs. It's not. Verse 4, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. It's not about my personal interest, number one. It's about Jesus and then helping people to find and follow Jesus. And then verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in a form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And verses 9 through 11, he rose again. And now he sits at the right hand of God the Father, and every knee will bow, and every mouth will confess that Jesus is Lord. Verse 11, to the glory of the Father. When our chief goal is to protect and preserve our life, then we'll end up losing our life. When our chief goal is to protect and preserve our life, then ultimately 
I'm going to lose my life forever. And that's what Jesus said. He who loses his life shall what? Save it when it's lost for him. How do you defeat the devil? A very brief verse. A very quick little sermon on how to defeat sin, how to defeat Satan. How can you kick the devil in the face where he can't defeat you in life the way that he was? Three basic principles. Satisfy, testify, mortify. Satisfy, testify, mortify. Is the devil an all-powerful enemy? No. He's actually a defeated enemy. Can you defeat the devil? By the grace of God, by the accomplishment of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, can you defeat the devil? Yes, you can. Greater is he that is in you that is in the world. Don't fear the devil. Fear Jesus Christ. God made the devil. C.S. Lewis used to say, the devil is God's either puppet. God created him. Christ won. Choose to believe it. Choose to fight like it. Choose to live like it. Live like Satan is your defeated enemy. But we have to choose to do that. You can defeat the devil because Christ already defeated the devil. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this verse. And they overcame him by the blood of the land, by the word of their testimony, and that they didn't even love their own lives, even to the point of death, Lord. May we emulate and practice these same principles by your grace. Lord, may we trust the satisfaction of Christ. May we give verbal confession that Jesus is Lord and the object of faith and that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and him alone, and by your grace, Lord. May we practice, mortify. May we be willing to die to self-love. It's not about loving ourselves. It's about loving God and then loving others, Lord. Lord, do your work in us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.